welcome to Phenomenosophy Season 2, Episode 1. With me is Mr. Gingy. How are you doing today, Mr. Gingy? Yo, yo, doing pretty good. How are you? I am very well. So what do you have for us today? What will we be discussing? Man, so I just recently watched the... Well, on Instagram, I was getting a lot of uh, people talking about a new movie called Uncle Tom 2. And I realized that that's the second of a two-part documentary. Uh, And so I went back to watch episode one. I guess it's not episode, documentary number one. And man, it it opened up a lot of stuff for me. And then I went on to watch number two. But uh, in this call, I figured it would be great for us to talk about the, uh, you know, Uncle Tom number one. It's uh, basically about... uh, African-American history, talking about slavery, talking about Jim Crow laws, talking about um, Republicans and Democrats and which parties have done what for African-Americans. And um, it does get into worldview, like being a victim and um, racism and systemic racism and things like that. So it's it's actually quite um, comprehensive of a film. It's it's amazing. But it opened up a lot of stuff for me around history, like historic events I had never heard of. So I'd love to get your opinion on some things. And I made a, a huge bullet point list of basically all of the interesting things that I found all the way through the movie. I think I've got, um, I don't know, I've got to have 30 bullet points here or something like that. <laughs> okay, sounds good. I, I think at one point I may have seen part one. Um, I'm not certain. But I will leave it to you to inform me of uh, the content. Sweet, yeah. I think uh, I think it was it came out in 2020. Uh, I don't know when exactly it came out. Uh, I'm guessing maybe earlier in the year or somewhere around the summer. Uh, so it is probably about three years old at this point. Um, but uh, let, let's dive into it. Okay, let's dive in. Uh, at the very beginning, they kind of go over a, a definition of Uncle Tom. And I had heard this term, but I didn't really understand the connotations behind it. Like what people are implying about you when they call you an Uncle Tom. No one's ever directly called me an Uncle Tom, so I was curious to see what they they said. And um, it's, it's kind of a derogatory term um, geared around calling somebody, basically, basically telling them, you're a black person that doesn't believe that they're oppressed, that you've sold out, you've cozied up with white people, and you're, you're pining after acceptance in white culture, white community, and you've basically been brainwashed by white people. <laughs> that's, that's what people are trying to say when they use the term Uncle Tom. Have you heard that term before? Right. Yeah, it comes from a book, right? Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, that's right, it does. I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I and my understanding is the same. It's a you're a whiteified black person, or an Oreo. <laughs> um, so that kind of comes along with a few different other words like uh, like house Negro, and um, you know that's kind of like drawing a distinction between the slaves that were out working the fields and the slaves that were you know serving master in in the house. And one obviously had it his life much better than the other, and so it's kind of like cozying up with with you know the the slave owner just to have a better life and turning your back on on your own people and not caring about how much they're suffering. Um, 
But it's interesting because that term has been thrown around a lot. They they talked about I forget the name of the dude who who uh, who did this film. Let me let me look it up real quick. Uh, and he had been called Uncle Tom. He uh, and Candace Owens had been called an Uncle Tom. I mean, it's not just exclusive to to black men. Um, anyway, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting because nowadays it's less about you know trying to be accepted by white people and more about you're a black Republican, which was an interesting dynamic that he talked about, talking about how he was raised and uh, you know followed. You know, he was basically part of the Democratic Party for a long time and supported them until he had a, a friend of his. As he was starting his journey in Christianity, uh, he basically said, Hey, man, you know, I'm, I'm a Democrat because Jesus says that we need to take care of poor, disadvantaged people. And his friend challenged him and said, Are, are you sure it says that you should or does it say that the government should? And it totally changed his perspective <laughs> on taking care of poor, disadvantaged people because he was expecting the government to take care. So he was like, "I'll vote Democrat, and they'll come out with all these benefits, and they'll take care of the, you know, the poor people and the low classes." And um, completely shifted his worldview and started looking into, you know, what the Democratic Party had to offer and what the Republican Party had to offer. Right. So basically, conservatism versus liberalism. Um, which is interesting right away because there is this nanny state kind of mentality that is really the backbone of liberalism um, where and, and really the backbone of leftism in general. So even whether you're talking about liberalism in the United States, which takes on the form of the Democrat Party, or whether you're talking about communism, which is the ultimate nanny state where uh, the state takes care of everything, everyone, <laughs> and no responsibilities, but also no freedoms or property or anything else. We'll just leave it all to the state. Yeah. So his friend challenged him and said, why don't you go take a look at what the Democratic Party offers and take a look at what the Republican platform offers? And he went and read through him and, and thought deeply about it for, I think, like a week or two. And he was shocked to realize that he was a Republican. <laughs> he shared more Republican or values, I'll say, with Republican with the Republican Party than he did with the Democratic Party. Because um, you know, for him, it, he had always assumed that the Democrats were the party of the people by the people, and they're the ones that were out there trying to support all people. And when he thought, okay, well. Maybe I have more principles in line with the Republican Party, but what have they really done for me throughout history? What are they known for? What big things have they done? And so he went historically back to look at Democrats and Republicans. Uh, and <laughs> he was shocked again to find out that the Democrats were responsible for slavery and voting for it and against the, um, the civil rights movement. And they're the ones that started the KKK to coerce black families into voting um, Democratic. Like if you were to vote for a Republican candidate, the KKK would show up and lynch your eldest son. Um, they were also the party that, that pushed the Jim Crow laws and got those accepted. And then it was Republicans that repealed those. It was the Republicans that unanimous, unanimously voted against an, or 
uh, voted for and got the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, which freed the slaves and gave black people citizenship and the right to vote, um, you know, and so on and so forth. And he was just kind of dumbfounded to find out that Democrats had not really done anything but oppose the freedom of black people throughout history. You know, this, that's something I'd never even heard of. Right, which is interesting when you juxtapose it on today, where you literally have people, again, the liberal, the, the leftists, pushing for segregation again <laughs> in universities like i just heard yesterday they were they're having five different uh graduation ceremonies at many of the ivy league colleges they have a black graduation they have an asian graduation they have uh a uh, what else did they have i'm sure some of them have a native american graduation uh, oh and a, a lat a latino latina latinx graduation so What's funny is that they're basically pushing for segregation. And guess what? No white graduation. That's just the general commencement ceremony. That's where whites get to have their graduation. They don't get a graduation to themselves because, you know, they're the oppressor. So I find it interesting that uh, that what really was at the foundation of the Jim Crow laws, which was basically segregation, uh, is now rearing its ugly head again under the guise of leftism again. Yeah basically anti-racism which in in my mind uh just kind of seems to be the flip of racism like i've seen a lot of similar things to what you're talking about except for they're creating quote-unquote safe spaces in universities the dedicated for um say black people in general and you're you go to these places and you don't have to be around any other race and you can kind of ah relax and not be around anybody but other black people and i, I found that that so weird because um, you know, there's there's other places like BIPOC safe places, which stands for Black Indigenous People of Color, and I'm like, okay, so everybody but white people is <laughs> allowed. You like, that's yeah. pretty much what that st- stands for. And um, you know, to me, it it sounds racist. And I've actually been having a lot of good conversations with people around what they think racism is. It's a completely different definition, but we won't go down that rabbit hole. I think we've done that in some other podcasts. Um, I want to stick with this because I want to get through the whole movie and the points because once we get towards the end, man, it gets really good. But the big point about him talking about the Democrats and Republicans at the beginning of this, for me anyway, is the fact that I had never heard any of this before. Like in my mind, until watching this film... I was like, oh, yeah, well, the Democrats are the ones that have just been fighting for all the people and blah, blah, blah. And the Republicans have just been like, we don't want to change. The liberals are fighting for change. And that was just kind of what I had in my mind until, like, I never thought about who started the KKK. Never thought about who's behind Jim Crow laws. Never thought about, you know, the civil rights movement and, and what the motivations were behind that. Like, I would have actually guessed, oh, it was all you know, Democrats. There's, there's the Democrats behind all of that. They're the ones that had the war on crime and the war on poverty and the war on drugs and the war on whatever, you know? I'm curious, does he ever address the uh, the fiction of the, what do they call it, the big switch or something? He does, yeah. That comes it, a little bit later in the okay, film. We awesome. can talk about it now. Okay. No, 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 no. I just wanted to make sure that he goes over because I think that's key in this, in this conversation because mm-hmm. that is... When you start to bring up the actual historical um, facts of, 
you know, Democrat or I'll say liberal versus conservatives in race relations and in, in racial progress, that uh, the big claim by the liberals is that at some point everyone switched places. <laughs> Basically, all the liberals became conservative and all the conservatives became liberals and all the liberals became not racist and all the conservatives just all of a sudden became racist. So I think it's a funny uh, 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 trope, I guess, at this point. But I, I just wanted to make sure that he addresses it and goes over it. So I, I think that's a, I think that's key to this conversation. Otherwise, you leave that opening. Yeah, and uh, we can talk about it now because it's just a quick little blip that that did come up. Um, all they really said was that. Uh, the, the two parties had switched, but really they didn't, and they couldn't find any real evidence that the parties did switch. They, you know, they go back and look at John F. Kennedy or something like that, and he was a gun-tooting, American-loving, you know, Democrat. But under current, you know, left values and right values, he would be considered a Republican right now. And so it is kind oh, of dude, weird. He'd be, to... he'd be considered. He'd be considered a far right extremist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the only other comment that they threw on that was like, you know, the parties didn't really switch. Just you know, you know, they just moved slavery to what they call a welfare state. They said welfare state is slavery 2.0. <laughs> anyway, uh, so after that, they started getting into. Uh, you know, historic events and characters like uh, Margaret Sanger, which we'll get into a little bit later, the KKK and Jim Crow South, and, you know, we talked about a little bit already. But they also got a, a slightly into Booker T. Washington and his Tuskegee, um, I forget what it was, a school of some kind that he had set up, um, and the Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. And just basically, those were just sort of minimally summarized as, as huge of events as they were and huge characters as they were, kind of summarized in what was going on um, post-slavery and pre-civil rights. Civil rights. Because that's kind of like the lost era of, of African-American culture. Like, how much have you heard about what happened after people were freed and before, like, Martin Luther King? Uh, very little. I know that they'll point to Reconstruction, um, or I, and well, actually not in mainstream. I'd say really all I've got is from like history class. And I remember uh, conversations around reconstruction, which is when you had, again, the democratic South and Southern states um, really kind of putting in the foundation of se segregationism, right? And, and suppression of black voting or manipulation of blacks and what and I think you've already kind of gone over some of that and I've heard summaries of in like history class where it's like just kind of breezed over of like here's here's what happened during reconstruction kind of thing and not a whole lot of detail and then mm -hmm. really that's it and I mean reconstruction is really what maybe accounts for a decade or two after the civil war and then you have you know almost 60, 70 years that are just kind of missing. As far um, do you as, remember what years Reconstruction was? I don't. I would say beginning in 1865. I don't know when they uh, consider it officially ended, um, but I would say at least a decade, maybe two. 
1865 to maybe 1885, but I'm not a historian. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. You're, you're pretty close. I just uh, I just Googled it, and it says uh, Reconstruction in the U.S. history was the period from 1865 to 1877. Oh, okay. So 12 yeah, pretty years. Close. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I mean, it's interesting because they started touching on uh, a lot of points that they really went into depth later, so I'm kind of trying to decide whether or not I want to um, introduce some spoilers or not. But, uh, you know, they talked about the introduction of ideas, like the idea that black people are handicapped in some way because of their race, that they're victims of some type of system. When, when, if, when if you're looking at, like, the boom that the African-American communities had for the you know the first five to ten years after slavery, it was like within you know a, a half of a century or something like that. You had you know fifty sixty percent of them becoming fully literate. You had these people starting all these businesses. You had you know millionaire black people being you know created and and just amazing stuff, um, which they talk about a little bit in depth later. Um, and and actually, the discovery that most people weren't really that racist or bigoted anyway was very much so the minority of people that they got. Like, one guy was telling a story about how when he was at um, uh, Boy Scouts camp, he was out there in California with a bunch of Boy Scouts, and it was like a handful of black guys and, a, and say, a couple hundred of white guys, and they were all out there, Boy Scouts. And one guy got into a fight with him and called him the N-word. And he had to hold back all the other white kids in there from beating the crap out of this kid. Like, they were more pissed off about it than he was. <laughs> right. And he really right. realized, he's like, wow, man. Like, it's pretty much everybody against the bigots. Like, it's not just black people against white people. Right. And, and that actually, I think that says something about the culture in general. So right now, I'm not just speaking about black culture in the United States at that time, but also culture in general in the United States. Remember, we have at the foundation of the principles uh, of the founding of this country were the Judeo-Christian principles. And in reality, remember, slavery was this worldwide phenomenon. It was not limited to the Americas. Um, almost every culture since the beginning of uh, civilization, uh, human civilization, has practiced slavery in one shape, in one form or another. Um, but it was the Christian ideals, specifically the Quakers, and I want to say they really started um, pushing back against slavery in either the 1600s or the 1700s. So really, the abolitionist movement kind of grew out of Ju the Judeo-Christian principles of the Quakers specifically. And as the Quakers kind of brought this to the foreground, like, hey, we're all children of God, and we should be treating each other as children of God. Therefore, we shouldn't be enslaving each other, um, which is interesting because if you look at the Bible itself, it doesn't really say anything against racism, or uh, not racism, but against slavery, um, because it was just a part of culture. It was just a, a given that slavery was part of human civilization since its beginning. So there was no, really, there weren't, there wasn't, passages to the bible that you know demonized it or made it wrong it was just like an accepted uh, aspect of our culture or of civilization in general 
And then with the Enlightenment, you know, uh, beginning in what, I guess it would be about the 1500s or so, you have people starting to apply their Judeo-Christian principles as opposed to just taking the Bible for what it says literally, um, because people could point to the Bible and say, well, you know, it talks about slavery and doesn't say it's wrong. Um, the Quakers kind of took a different interpretation. We're like, no, uh, we're all human beings, and therefore we should all be treating each other the same way. We're all children of God. So that's those Judeo-Christian principles are probably why the experience of even racism and bigotry was limited because the culture in that in the time period that you're referring to was still very much steeped in Judeo-Christian principles. Now today we don't really have that. Um, I mean, there are still people who call themselves Christians and people who still live their lives by Judeo-Christian principles, but it is not the majority. Um, so I think that may play a role in that and why there was this acceptance of people in general, regardless of the race, because that's, if you look at from the time the Quakers started speaking out against it, the abolitionist movement just grew and grew and grew um, in fact, it was, and, and when I say Quakers, I'm not talking about the Quakers of the United States. These were the Quakers in England before they even really had a large foothold in the United States. And that's why England was at the forefront of outlawing slavery worldwide was because of, again, these Judeo-Christian principles. If you think about just this country's history specifically, um, we enshrined that right into constitutions and you know the declaration the bill of rights all of it um that like that's part of what i I remember learning from martin luther king was that he was you know talking about aligning the people the american people to the american principles and that's something i really thought was was amazing and wanted to get behind an idea like that um, it's interesting, like another thing that I hadn't really realized, but then in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. Like it's what my experience has been is that the Judeo-Christian, um, you know, beliefs and principles and practices, uh, they are an intimate aspect of African-American history, even though it's not necessarily um, a natural African, you know, religion. It's something that they learned from Western culture while they were in the U.S. I, I think. I mean, this is, again, stuff that I've learned probably through public education. Um, so I would assume that it's that way. But even, you know, regardless, if it was or if it wasn't, you take a look at what had them so successful from, you know, the late 1800s to the mid-1900s. And they posted some pretty interesting statistics. They said that um, 85% of black families, um, they had two parent households and they were, they weren't rich, but they were, you know, well off, like middle class. And they all had, uh, they, they said they called them their institutions, but I took that to mean that everybody went to church, everybody went to you know, Sunday school, everybody was part of a community. People were walking through the streets. Like they said that grandparents could walk through the streets freely without worrying about being accosted by their grandchildren. It's kind of the way that they put it. <laughs> Whereas nowadays you'd look at somebody that's maybe in their 80s or something like that and their grandkids would be the ones that are out on the streets, you know, 
robbing and, and you know, threatening being violent. It's, it's really interesting because um, that was such a massive point is those Judeo-Christian values that they took on early on, uh, you know, growing up out of whatever situations they found themselves in. Anyway, um, they, they compared that to, you know, the, the current state that we are in now where instead of idolizing um, your father figure or Jesus or whatever else, you're looking up to guys like Jay-Z and Colin Kaepernick and, you know, this, this you know, <laughs> they said victimhood is a hot commodity these days. And, you know, the, the, the communities are still, still suffering. Um, whereas, you know, if they were looking up to guys like Booker T. Washington or um, uh, there was another guy, uh, I don't remember his name right now, but there were some other big African-American um, figures that their main thing was like, work hard, develop a skill, and then you will be, um, you know, and, and place yourself in society and you will be successful. And, oh, guys like Larry Elder and Thomas Sowell, um, Walter Williams, these guys are unheard of iconic figures in African-American culture that all were basically Republicans that talked about self-responsibility, self-reliance, you know, small government, <laughs> basically being responsible and stuff like that. Right. I, I love that Larry Elder and his recent uh, uh, try at the governorship of California was literally called the white or no the black face of white supremacy by mainstream media <laughs> in California. Yep, I saw Basically that. <laughs> because 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 of conservatism and Judeo-Christian principles. So it's now conservatism and Judeo-Christian principles that has become part of the definition of quote unquote whiteness in our culture. And this is a at least this is my perspective and this is a tool by which they attempt to radicalize people of color against those cult those aspects of our culture, which in reality, like you just went over, created prosperity for people of color throughout history, is now you've you've sold them on one, the victim mentality, and two, they now have a new set of martyrs and and uh, idols that they look up to. So they're no longer looking up to religious figures or saints as models, and they're looking to, like you said, uh, rappers and athletes and things like that, who are also upholding these victimhood uh, worldview. The commodity of being a victim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's cool. They went on to talk about how, you know, the idea of I'm oppressed, which I, I hate using that. I mean, there's one guy in there that talked about um, what, you know, what we live in right now is a marketplace of ideas. Everyone's trying to sell you an idea. And in fact, all the arguments, if you go listen to enough of them, you'll hear the common language through each one of them is, oh, the idea of oh, when it pours me, the idea of, I mean, everyone's just talking about ideas. It's no longer the acts or, you know, whatever else you could associate with a person. It's, you know, it's a marketplace of ideas. But in here, they do talk about, 
you know, if you've got the impression that you are oppressed, if you take that and it's one of your core beliefs, it turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy. All those people that actually are oppressed by these systems are the ones that believe they are. Like, most of the people that they interviewed in this documentary said, I didn't realize I was oppressed until I got to college. <laughs> and I started arguing with my white professors, and they told me, you know, you'll never make it because you're a black, white female. Uh, sorry, black, white. A uh, black female. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, you're black, white female. Um, or, or even worse, she might even be straight. <laughs> yep, probably. And probably a Christian. Um, however, they, they did throw this statistic out, which was interesting. They said that the most successful black Americans these days are Nigerian Americans because they didn't get brainwashed by the media. <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but I was like, well, you know, they just showed a clip of a bunch of them talking and, and how successful they had been. And they were like leaders in these communities and they were all Nigerian Americans. Yeah, actually, that's funny that you say that because there's a really good friend of mine and a business partner of my brother, and he's from Nigeria, and he's a doctor and extremely successful. And <laughs> he was, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure when he moved to, because he, he's actually educated in, in England. Um, so that's where he got his uh, doctorates and things like that. Um, but I know he was born in Nigeria. I don't know. At, at what time he went to England, but it's, you know, culturally speaking and uh, familiar with his brother. I've, I've never, I've never met his brother in person. Um, but it, you can tell just if you're just in a conversation with them, there's a, they're definitely not in the victim mentality and they're extraordinarily mm -hmm. successful. I mean, that, that kind of goes, into hand in hand, it being that 80 to 90% of the news is you know, estimated to be left leaning, and that's where these ideas are coming from. Um, when, when in reality, um, they contrasted that with the fact that if you were to look up the GDP of the black communities across the US, they would be they would comprise the 15th wealthiest nation on the planet. <laughs> Wait, like, just, just like, Nigerian Americans? No, 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 sorry, African-Americans in general. Oh, uh, okay. So count the Nigerians in there with all of the other African countries in America. Right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, the Nigerians are the ones that just accepted America as an idea and decided to follow it through, you know what I mean? Personal responsibility, self-governance, um, the land of opportunity, you, you name it. Um which is interesting. It goes to the next point that they made in the movie where they, they talked about the schism between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois. Have you heard of both those guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, that's, that, that's part of the high school history education, but what's notable is that Booker T. Washington is glossed over for the most part, and W.E.B. E. Du Bois is kind of promoted and held up, um, which I find interesting because, again, W.E.B. Du Bois being a socialist, a.k.a. communist, um, and how Booker T. Washington, who was, to my understanding, an advocate of work ethic and not being caught up in the uh, oppressed or victim mentality, 
um, that they gloss over Booker T. Washington and emphasize the the contributions of W.E.B. Du Bois. Yeah. I mean, they talk about how Booker T. Washington was born into slavery, and then once he found out he was freed, uh, he walked across the entire state of Virginia to some school and, you know, got his education and then made his way, uh, I want to say, down to, um, I almost said Manhattan, but I know it's not that, it's Harlem. Uh, and he started his own school, uh, and it might not even been in Harlem, but uh, he created millionaires. Uh, like there was, I don't, I don't think that was him directly. I believe his his school was in a southern state. I don't remember which, Alabama, it was. Georgia, something like that. It was, yeah, in it was Alabama, actually. I want to say right. it was one of his students that actually started the move towards Harlem. Started buying up buildings in Harlem, and because at that time. Harlem was a white community, predominantly white, and one of Booker T. Washington's students, or the a student of his Tuskegee Institute or whatever it was, um, made his way to Harlem and started buying apartment buildings, and then started eventually uh, African Americans started moving into Harlem, and basically not only uh, renting spaces from this guy who was buying up buildings, but they started creating businesses. They started buying up their own properties. And before you know it, uh, Harlem became a really, at least again, this is my understanding, uh, a really successful um, example of a black community or predominantly black eventually in, and I think this is like the early 1900s, right? Like, like just after the turn of the century is when they started this move to Harlem. Well, uh, Booker T. Washington is the guy, along with some other business partners, not just him, uh, started in an African-American real estate investment company, basically. And those are the guys who started going and buying up a bunch of real estate all over the place which inevitably turned into Harlem. And as that built, it became one of those, like, you know, they contrasted it with uh, Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. And those were two of, like, the most wealthiest black-owned communities to ever have existed. Now, again, I've just gone through this movie, and I've written down a bunch of notes and stuff, um, I haven't really fact-checked all of this, so you may be right. It may have been one of his students that you know went up to Harlem and really got it off the ground, or maybe he just bought some property there and somebody else was doing it. I'm not totally sure, but the whole story of him was like going from slavery and um, teaching hundreds or thousands of people to be self-reliant and creating all of this entrepreneurialism and creating massive amount of wealth for these different, you know, black families and groups, and then being called a house Negro and Uncle Tom, and being belittled for um, not believing that you know slavery was still holding black people down. Like, um, wait, wait, Bois, wait, 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 wait. Are are you saying that this is this was happening back then, or is this people looking back at history and making those judgments? What do you mean? Ask that question again. <clears throat> okay, so you're saying that they were being, you know, uh, called these derogatory terms, but I'm what I'm asking is, was yep. that from, 
you know, a, a later date looking back? Or are you talking about like, was this something like W.E.B. W.E.B. Dubois was doing? Because I again, I know W.E.B. Mm-hmm. Dubois as a socialist was most likely pushing this victimhood mentality. But I can also see that uh, that derogatory view of what was being done in Harlem as a more modern phenomenon of like maybe people in the 60s, 50s and 60s looking back at that time and making those derogatory comments and judgments. Uh, From the impression that I got was that that happened in the age of Booker T. Washington versus Okay. Um, Because, I mean, he was, Booker T. Washington was basically going out there saying, like, demonstrate your value and, you know, we'll be accepted into any community because we'll be seen as valuable. And Dubois was saying, uh, you know, he believed more in in a protest-oriented demanding of rights, basically. He was a socialist who turned communist and then eventually renounced his U.S. citizenship, his American citizenship. Um, Whereas, like, Booker T. Washington's Institute still stands today. You know, they were saying that we have a lot to learn from people like Booker T. Washington because his impact on society still exists. Well, constructively still exists. I'd say that Du Bois, you know, impact still exists as well, but it's not a constructive uh, impact. So, I mean, I'm sure that he's I'm sure that he's been demonized both back in the day, 100 years ago and today. Anyway, um, and this is, you know, the next point that they went into is, is the thing that I, I think I talked to you about a couple of days ago. Um, I made sure to detail this out a little bit more, but it's one of my favorite stories when people start talking about um, reparations and, and racism and, you know, how disadvantaged people of color are. <clears throat> There's this guy in the movie called Herman Cain, and they did an interview with him. And he worked uh, for a few different, you know, businesses like Pillsbury or something like that. But eventually he he quit all of that and he got hired by the Department of the Navy. And, you know, for four quarters in a row for his first year, he got like the top accolades, you know, top performer, along with this other guy that he was working next to that started around the same time. And then the second year he was there. Or was he in the Navy or a contractor for the Navy? I'm not sure. He just said that he worked for the Department of the Navy. Okay. Um, and so the, the second year that he was working there, same thing, four quarters in a row, top of, you know, top worker accolades. And his white counterpart kept getting promotions, um, like uh, pay bumps and stuff, at least like two months quicker than he would. So he went to his boss and he asked him and he was like, why is you know i'm doing just as good as this guy why why is it that he's getting his bonuses quicker than me and the guy was like well it's because he's got a master's degree he goes oh it's not not because he's white he goes no he goes okay so he went and got a master's degree <laughs> and he came back and he's like hey man i've got a master's now i mean it didn't happen overnight right a master's takes at least a couple of years depending on how much education you've had and um he said keep me in mind for the next promotion and it wasn't long after that that he got promoted to lead uh, what he called the GS-13. He, he was the supervisor and head mathematician on a special project 
called Rocket Assisted Projector, where they were basically doing a bunch of aer aer aeronautic stuff. Um, wherein he had eight white people working for him, and when he left the department, his, uh, his supervisor called him in for an exit interview and said, uh, you know what, uh, Mr. Kane, he's like, you have taught me something in your time here. And he said, well, what's that? He said, I've never worked with a black person before, and you taught me not to judge somebody by the color of their skin. And I'm like, it gives me chills to even like utter those words and to think about that as, as, as a reality for people. I mean, it just goes to show that you can't, like if they had forced this guy to hire him and he went through and he didn't strive to be the best at what he did, that guy would have been like, well, you know, all these black people you know, that I've ever worked with operate like this. And he would have left with a certain mentality and belief about judging people by the way that they look. But this guy defied every expectation that he had for him, you know, amazingly. And it just, man, it like, I love stories like that. It brings tears to my eyes. It warms my heart. I just, what, probably one of my favorite parts of the movie. When, when uh, do you know about what the timeline was? Like, what decade that was in? Um, let's see. If I had to guess, I would probably say the 80s or something. He looked to be in his, okay. like, 70s or something. He looked to be retired, but still kind of early retirement, maybe. Um, and, you know, he lived long enough to work for several different jobs and then go have a career with the Navy and then quit, you know, so he still does consulting, I think for people here and there, but, um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't tell you, I would guess he's in his seventies or something. Right. It's interesting um, because it reminds me of, uh, the story, uh, that Clarence Thomas tells about, um, Gosh, what do they call that program? Uh, affirmative action. How, as soon as they started instituting affirmative action, that he felt cheated because he got what he got through merit. And because they started instituting all these affirmative action programs, the assumption and presumption of many was that he got to where he got because he was black, which again, that's the equity conversation, right? Which is basically neo-Marxism. And it's something that he, that he really wishes didn't exist because now there's this baked in judgment that I got here because the color of my skin, not because of my competencies or my merit. Um, so I find that interesting that again, you, you're, in the gentleman you just mentioned, uh, Herman Kane, was it? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing where he got what he got through merit and through his competency as opposed to, you know, he didn't get hired because he was black. He didn't get promoted because he was... He got hired and promoted because of his merit and competencies. And his work ethic, I'm sure, played into it as well. That's where you get all the promotions from. Absolutely. You know, it's really funny is the people that I uh, talk to in my own personal life, uh, not a single one of them ever would wish to be a diversity hire. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Nobody actually yeah, wants to be one. Right. Nobody wants to do be that or claim that or or you know, I mean, imagine being the guy who's uh, you know suffering his way through life, and someone comes down and gives you this handout and says, "We're going to put you in a management position at Apple." And you have no idea about phones or marketing or business or anything. They put you in position there and you constantly feel like you're not in the right place. And then you go around telling everybody, yeah, I'm the diversity. Like nobody wants to experience that. Everybody wants to say, I earned this position. I'm, I deserve to be here. Like I'm moving on. I'm getting better. Like a diversity hire doesn't, you know, climb the corporate ladder and achieve massive levels of success within an organization. They don't become a highly successful entrepreneur. They don't like, that's just not, that's just not how it happens. <laughs> right. Well, because the essence of what makes a person successful and that drives a person up those ladders is their, again, their work ethic, their competency, the merit of, of what they bring to the table and if you don't have any of that, yeah, if you don't have any of that, then there is no moving up the ladder. Now, I'm not going to say that they're not going to necessarily, especially in today's uh, workplace, especially if you look at places where they're, uh, you know, uh, extra woke and extra, uh, uh, what's the word, um, uh, focused on diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Uh, what you're going to find is just a, hi- a high level of incompetency <laughs> throughout the organization. In fact, I think that that's what we're seeing with Hollywood in particular is that, you know, the quality of what comes out of Hollywood is just spiraling down the drain. And it's probably has a lot to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion that nobody is really being given their positions based on their merit, their talent, their work ethic, or anything else. It's like, oh, we need a couple more black guys. Go get a couple more black guys. Oh, we need a couple more lesbians. Uh, go get a couple more lesbians. And then that's that's how they're filling roles as opposed to, well, uh, do you have any experience at this job? Are you good at this job? Uh, you know, uh, let me see some of your work. Let me hear, let me see some of your references. Like these are, these are things that people aren't looking at right now. And I'm not saying everywhere. Um, I know in, in my business, I'm not going to hire based on your color. <laughs> I'm going to hire based on your competency, based on your work ethic. Like that's all I'm interested in because I want my business to be successful. And so I want, regardless of your color, I don't care what your color is. Are you competent? Are you good at what I need you to do? And that's about it. Like if you meet those requirements, I'm going to hire the person with the highest level of merit. So it's a combination of those things. When I look at work ethic, talent and merit, I'm it's who scores the highest based on those indicators, right? Based on those on those metrics. That's what I'm going to base my hiring on because that's what's going to make my company successful. And this is why I kind of push back on the uh, the old, uh, the idea that a lot of business owners and things out there hire people because of their color, right? Like, oh, they hire white people, you know, and, the, and there's this uh, white privilege and they're getting hired because they're white. Dude, anyone who's worth their salt and runs a business is not going to hire someone based on their color. It's just not going to happen because you're not going to be successful. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I know there's nepotism 
right? So I know people get hired because of the family they come from, because of their connections and relationships. I'm not, I'm not naive. I do realize that there's nepotism out there. However, it's few and far between. If you hire everyone in your organization based on nepotism, based on how they're connected to you, how they know you, or what the color of their skin is, dude, your business is doomed. Good luck. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're going to fail <laughs> well, there's, because you don't have competency. There's also something to say about building a culture of an organization. Because you don't want to, like, like my perfect example, I've got a buddy who works at a company, and he got the job over somebody else, and he was less qualified, not because he's white, but because he's ex-military and, you know, kind of has the same type of disposition and views on life. And just in the interview, they're like, oh, man, I like that guy. We can have some fun here. And the job wasn't particularly, you know, demanding of, a, of you know, exclusive skill sets or anything like that. So they had that flexibility. Uh, guaranteed, if, if he had to perform at a certain level that he couldn't, he probably wouldn't have gotten the job. However, the fact is he got the job mostly because he fit the culture. And if you don't have a, a healthy, productive culture in an organization, it can fall apart no matter how good or how diverse the, the, the people are in the group. Right. And actually, I'm going to revise my statement there. Uh, I, w I would definitely take that into consideration. Here's who I'm not going to hire. Um, Ivy League graduates, um, uh, any kind of a uh, social studies <laughs> major, um, because, because of what they would do to the culture. They would be pure poison to the culture because what they're going to bring in is a sense of victimhood and... And, and I, again, you're, you see this in all these organizations, um, you know, whether it be Netflix or Amazon or Facebook or Google, they have way too many social justice warriors in their ranks that, if anything, are, are a, have a negative impact on the culture of the business, right? Um, I, I remember a story from a couple years ago where a, a, a white cisgendered male programmer at Google was he, he just he could not take the culture anymore right because he was constantly being singled out as an oppressor and everyone else being given you know uh hand ups because of their oppressed class um and, and it just it, to him it was just playing out bigotry and racism towards him you know and mm -hmm. it, it and so it, it it's a toxic culture so here, a, a highly, t a highly skilled, highly talented um, individual with, you know, programming skills, which is pretty important to the Google infrastructure, is uh, is driven away by the culture of Google. Um, and so that, yeah, I would say that is actually a really important aspect: is what is the mindset of the person you're hiring? So beyond merit, beyond competency, yes, definitely a mindset. Um, because the the woke ideology is is people hold that with like a religious fervor, and if they bring that into your organization, it could be very destructive. In fact, you you see it playing out that way in many organizations. Yeah, I genuinely believe that most of the people who harbor you know worldviews, beliefs, um, you know positions, basically like that. They have good intentions behind them, but the, the effects are 
cancerous, poisonous, destructive in some way. And that's what they went over in this movie. Um, they had one guy actually sit down and start talking about the minimum wage laws. And he was like, well, of course that's good. You want to make sure everyone's got, getting enough money to live and blah. And he's went on this whole thing and he had a professor in college that said, that's good. You know, the intent is good, but let's look at the effects of it. And they went over the effects of minimum wage laws. They went over the effects of um, uh, the welfare stuff. I forgot, oh man, I'm losing my words right now. But they looked at the effects of welfare and the effects of minimum wage laws. And it was crippling to black communities. And, you know, you look back on some of these monumental events and you're like, oh man, it portrayed so well. And you go to school and you start learning about how important this was and how constructive this was for, you know, American development and history. And then you actually start looking into the facts behind it and you're like, well, before this, people were actually much better than after this. And then somebody brought up a, a quote that I I never really thought of, but that I found very, um, let's just say, I think it's very important, but I haven't continued to, like, I feel like I need to think about it and think on it and be with it for a little bit. But they basically said, quote unquote, history is not written by the victors. History is written by the academics. <laughs> and I like dude, it hit me. because okay yeah you you come in and you conquer a civilization and you write the laws but if the people that are going and teaching the next generation aren't writing this or teaching the same things that you wrote well then history remembers those events very differently and if it's in academics hands then you can really change the academics who are doing the teaching you can change the materials that the uh, the academics are teaching and eventually, you can completely rewrite history generation after generation after generation. In fact, I remember learning one version of Christopher Columbus in elementary school and a totally different version of Christopher Columbus in, like, middle school. Right. And I was like, oh, I guess we're supposed to learn it this way now. And I had to unlearn and relearn. And I, it, it's, it sits with me as true right now, but I haven't, you know, again, it's only been a few days. <laughs> I'm really curious to, like, if... That is true. What, what do you think about that quote of history being written by the academics? Well, in, in our culture, definitely. I, I definitely see that, which now brings back the, the significance of the Frankfurt School's infiltration of our educational system and neo-Marxism's uh, just being so prevalent and widespread throughout academia. It, it actually makes sense why history has been re- rewritten the way that it has been rewritten. So, again, these the 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 DEI ideas, right? Uh, ideology of of wokeness, all comes from neo-Marxism. It's just rather than it being dual in the case of the proletariat versus the uh, bourgeoisie, it's now uh, basically. Uh, straight white men versus everyone else. <laughs> straight white men are the bourgeoisie and your oppressed class is pretty much everyone else. Um, so it's just, it, it's a reframing of the same ideas. And because mm-hmm. in academia, neo-Marxism has had a foothold for, gosh, at least over 60, 70 years now. Um, so it makes sense why this transition 
in history has occurred because not only and if we say if if by academia we mean the university system and the university professors well those same university professors not only are they teaching the people who go out into the world and become engineers and other things like that but they also teach the next generation of teachers who are teaching yeah. in elementary schools and, and middle schools and high schools and so their ideas their ideology in is now infecting the youth as well even though you know, your kindergartner, your first grader isn't going to some university with some crazy neo-Marxist, you know, uh, teaching him subjects. But the teacher who's in his class has been educated by that crazy neo-Marxist. And so the oppressed, op uh, oppressor, oppressed uh, ideas become a part of the, of the history and the rewriting, right? So it's, and, and again, this is, goes back to the ideas of Antonio Gramsci and the implementation of the um, of Marxism or not Marxism but communism through Mao or Mao's flavor of, of Marx or of communism uh, where it's about undermining the culture so you undermine the culture you rewrite the history you make you make martyrs out of the quote-unquote oppressed and you uh, turn your heroes and your founding fathers and the people who actually did the work to build a great nation, you turn them into the into the villains, right? Which is why you don't hear about Booker T. Washington, right? Because he didn't have the right mentality as far as the, neo, the neo-Marxists are concerned. His mentality was, you know, work hard, you know, to get what you, you know, learn a trade, work hard, you will be... Uh, is successful, right? And that doesn't yeah. that doesn't fit with the neo-Marxist ideology. The neo-Marxist ideology: you have to convince everyone that they're victims, and so that they will embrace a system of government that controls all aspects of our lives, so that we can take from one group and give to another group. Um, and none of that is based on on a free market. None of that is based on individual liberties. It's it's something else entirely, which is interesting because these these people have grown up in in a culture and a society where we do have, you know, individual liberties and we and we value uh, individualism and independence and things like that. But they've been they've been coaxed into or they've they've bought into because of its attractiveness, the idea of just getting something for nothing, right? I don't believe that the people who really push these ideologies are true believers. I don't believe they really believe in them. I believe that it's just what's really at maybe at the, at where the pressure for this ideology comes from is people who just want some form of totalitarianism and realize that the most attractive form of totalitarianism is Marxism. Because you sell the youth on the idea that, oh, yeah, you're just going to get something for nothing, and it's very attractive. So I think that's why the youth, even though they've grown up in a culture where they have individual liberties, they have independence and all these things, which they're not realizing that the trade-off that comes with giving, eliminating the free market and giving all that power over to the government. Um, the trade-off is totalitarianism. No more individuality no more independence you don't have those things anymore but 
it, it goes along with not also not having responsibility, which is what the victim mentality really pushes is you're not responsible, you're not accountable. But if you're not responsible, not accountable, well, then you don't really have any rights because with rights comes responsibility and accountability. So the victim mentality is is really double edged. You know, it's a double edged sword in that it it also it not only is there the, that element of of no responsibility, no accountability, but there's also the other edge, which is no rights. <laughs> the state dictates your position. The state dictates your when and how and where you work, and and there and there is no free market, right? So you don't determine the value of your labor. You don't harness or, or pursue the trades or uh, professions or things that you want to do. Your those things are assigned and given to you. So there's there's just this huge lack of understanding of where that mentality leads to and why these educators, these neo-Marxists who are rewriting history, why they're writing it the way that they're writing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that these guys return to several times in, throughout the documentary is uh, how much the, the liberal side of government you know, made certain decisions, like how since the civil rights bills passed, um, you know, created by JFK and then signed into into law by by Lyndon Johnson. Uh, that's that's LBJ, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> since then, uh, it was almost as if the narrative of the country had shifted, and they were able to kind of stick the I'll say the marketing of the Democratic Party to the party of the African American people. Which, in reality, um, Al Gore's father, Al Gore Sr., um, <laughs> this was a funny thing. I had no idea it even happened, but he, uh, he, they said he mounted the longest filibuster in the history of the Senate in order to prevent the civil rights bill from getting even to the floor for a vote. And he lived right. a Democrat and died a Democrat. And, I mean, just the, the, the contrast between Democrats and Republicans and the history I've heard about and the history I haven't heard about um, really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff in this, in this documentary that, that I never would even have considered or be interested in in the first place. Like, like you were talking about with education, people start talking about, oh, I, you know, I majored in you know, African-American studies. I'm like, oh, great. Who gives a shit? <laughs> but that's because everything that I've ever heard from it just like gives me more reason to feel bad about myself. Had I actually ever been exposed to like, Hey, here's two different African Americans and they both had conflicting viewpoints and here's what they created in their lives. And here were the impacts and this is how these people got helped. And this is how these people got helped. I would, I would be so much more interested in history. Like I want to know all about the people that built Harlem. I want to know all the people that built, um, like there was a, a, a bus lines and stuff that were created before Rosa Parks and, and all this stuff. There were, um, you know, Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. I, I'm like, I want to know how these things were built. I want to know how all of this like evolution from the late 1800s all the way up to the 1950s 
it's like that's a black hole i i know nothing about it and you know they 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 even said that from 1930 to night well not from 1930 but from the 1930s till the 1940s during the height of segregation and jim crow laws african americans had the highest marriage rate out of any group in the u.s Um, church served as like their social and communal anchors and neighborhood violence was at like almost zero they had thriving and growing businesses they built hospitals they built dental schools they built hotels movie theaters like no one ever talks about that and the first thing that i i think when i hear that is okay is that true i've never heard anything about that before i need to go research now from the 1930s to the 1940s and verify this you know then obviously in the film they start talking about people that were alive back then like oh my father he was born in 1910 and he was doing x y and z and he talked to us about all this stuff and it's just it's, it's amazing like the the legitimacy the crime rates the illiteracy etc all of those things have gotten worse they said since the 1930s right. well and it's interesting that you that you brought up that the really the Democrats were very much against the Civil Rights Act, but remember it was a Democrat who signed it into law. So what changed? Mm -hmm. What changed? And in reality, what came with? That's the question, right? Because we know how government works, how legislation works, and it's you alter and change legislation (laughs) to get people to vote for it, right? So what came with the Civil Rights Act was well, let's talk LBJ's about it. Great Society. Oh, that's probably what you meant when you said New Deal. Did you mean the Great Society? Uh, no. Uh, they said okay. New Deal, and I wrote that down, and I was just trying to run past a bunch of stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, um, so there's that, there's that element, right? What was the Great Society? You know, the, and that's where you get the war on poverty and all right. this stuff. So it's, it, it was almost, it's, it's insidious, right? So what, what effect? did the great society uh, laws have, or, or policies, I should say, it's a more accurate description, what, res- what effect did the great society policies have on black culture? Well, here's what they said. In, in the movie, they, had, uh, they, they basically boiled it down to a couple of different things. And they were mostly connecting it to what they called generational fatherlessness. And so, you know, previous to the 1962 to 1963, 85% of black families had a man and a woman raising a child together, biological child together, not like an adopted kid or anything like that. And um, they said Cloward and Piven, both sociologists at the Columbia University School of Social Work, theorized that if they could separate work from income, it would make men redundant and if we could remove the stigma of welfare, it would bankrupt cities and counties. And so soon after that, these new ideas started being introduced. <clears throat> Nuclear families became Eurocentric and racist. The women's movement agreed and the black power movement agreed. And millions of black people flooded into the welfare system in less than four years at a time where un- unemployment rates were at like an all time low of less than 4%. And then out of wedlock births went from under 25% up to over 70% in that same time frame. Like wow. almost like a light switch went off. 
You know, like it, they said during slavery, a biological child was more likely to be raised by both parents today or by both parents than it is likely to today. <laughs> a, a biological child versus a robot? <laughs> or an adopted child or something. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you said biological <laughs> child. I'm, and I'm, I'm sitting here like, okay, what other kind of children are there besides biological ones? GMOs, bro. GMO uh, child. Imaginary. <laughs> I guess imaginary ones. Um, so basically, as a kid, you had a better chance of being raised by both your parents during slavery than you do today. And right. they talked about all of the biggest problems that the African-American communities face today, not way back in the day, but today, can all be stemmed back to fatherlessness. You have a kid being raised without a father, creates a certain type of adult, which guess what, is more likely to be a present father. We'll say that it's, it's a male child growing up to be a man. Um, you've, he's got a less likely chance to be around for his children. So now you've got generational fatherlessness. And they said that that, like more black people are killed in, in one year by other black people than the KKK killed in the entire 70 years they've been in existence. Every year. And 52% of all black pregnancies ended in abortion. That's, that's 1,786 abortions per day since 1973. Oh, that's millions goodness. and millions of abortions. Like, it, I'm not advocating for or against abortion or anything, but if you're just looking at the statistics, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, and, and again, that would have been... Now, again, I don't know if, it, like, in the current state of things... Okay, let me back up. My question, <laughs> if we look at black culture in the United States in, let's say, the 1950s, where you did have fathers in the home, you had a much higher level of prosperity, you had entire successful uh, black communities, what happened? Why would you trade all that in? What, why let it all go? Like, my question is, what happened to Harlem in that transition? What happened to Tulsa in that transition? Why all of a sudden did did it just all get let go of? Like, and I, I'm I'm guessing this has something to do with ideology that there was this mindset, right? That there was this mindset that people were being infected with that affected that. Because why would you give all that up? Why would you let all that go? What convinced? the black communities in America to let go of what they had, the prosperity that they had, the success that they had, the families that they had. Greener pastures. Like, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. They got enrolled into some idea that what they could have was better than what they did have. So, like, why do I have to deal with this man when I could get a divorce and get child support payments? Why would I, you know, stick around with this woman that I, you know, I no longer, basically they said, if you can convince a man to give up his responsibilities of providing for and raising children and all of that stuff, and you can convince a woman that she doesn't need a man for all that, you can all of a sudden divide the household. And once you can divide a household, then you can easily 
see like it's not even really dividing you're incentivizing you're right. incentivizing yeah. the the separation of a family and when you do that then you're left with the results of divided you know divorced unsupported on you know whatever family so if your dad leaves you what do you think you're going to learn how to do leave your family like how how likely is it that you're going to be committed to your kids if your dad wasn't committed to you and right. i mean it's not like people are doing this stuff consciously but if you've got an idea that you know you don't need no man you don't need no woman and you're better off on your own you're a, you're giving up your judeo-christian values of you know whatever they were back then and you're taking on some new age spirituality or something else you know even atheism or agnosticism or something all of these things can contribute to single parent households and the likelihood that those children will be well looked after decreases an insane amount and then you have a spike in out of wedlock births and a spike in abortions and you know it just it like it starts to spiral from there it's as if those ideas were at the center those incentives were at the center of whatever happened from the 60s until now because up until the 60s black people were thriving as much as like history can be examined factually you can find some guys thinking of oh I'm, i was oppressed and i couldn't do x y and z or my you know brother was lynched and or something like those stories do exist but the overwhelming facts that these people were laying out in this paints a very different picture that up until the 60s black people were thriving more and more and more and then civil rights movement and LBJ's uh, um, acts and stuff, great society, um, completely flipped things up, and and you just see a 180 of of that momentum. Right, so it's cutting them off at the knees. So it's it's interesting because is as you were saying that a, a again then became juxtaposed with now. So what was happening then? You had the youth, right? The the youth from, let's say, 15 to probably 25, maybe even older, they weren't going to work anymore. They were going out into the streets. They were protesting. They were causing problems. In fact, uh, my dad, uh, at in the early 60s, lived in uh, in South Central Los Angeles, and he was actually on the, I think he was on the 110 freeway when the Watts riots broke out in the 60s and that is that is what we're seeing today what are the youth doing well they're not going to fucking work <laughs> that's not what they're doing no they're tweeting and protesting and causing problems but they're not they, they've got this mentality of entitlement which I'm guessing that's what they were sold on in the 60s. There was now this new sense of entitlement. And not just entitlement, but moving away from developing useful skills, which makes them less useful and more dependent on handouts. Right. Like you, you combine those two things together, the, the entitlement. So you're going out there and spending your time demanding, you know, certain things change and demanding certain handouts 
and that has you spending less time developing your own you know education developing your own skill sets which then has you less useful and less likely to get a job and less likely to take care of yourself so now you're feeling more and more entitled and more and more victimized so really the entire switch if i could pinpoint it in what they're summarizing in this movie is that at some point in the 60s african-american culture shifted from focusing on creating value and being responsible to being victims and demanding handouts right being entitlement yeah Uh, so where does the filmmaker go with all this where does he you know what are his conclusions like does he kind of come to a point of like here's where we need to go are there ideas of solutions (laughs) or remedies like where where does the filmmaker take all this to well it's interesting you would think that that would be a good place to sum it up and and end um but he continued it to really connect to um you know he went through abortions and and talked about how 52 percent of black pregnancies end in abortions nowadays um he talked about how that's no longer a conversation about um like one of the big things that i took away from this was that pre 19 um say 30 or 40 um like towards the end of booker t washington's work he said that before that like say before 1920 the general conversation was not about racism or any other ism it was about good versus evil like there's evil in the world and some people embody it and behaved this way and there's good in the world and some people embodied it and behaved this way but then came the onset of the ideas of racism well these people are evil they're not really evil they have an idea that they're you know their race is you know supreme that they're better than or something like that and then that came on to other phobias like homophobia and all of these other things so they really just started separating out different well, that's, types yeah, of that's, evil yeah that's neo marxism it's it's really it's oppressor yeah. oppressed that's what the conversation boils down to that's where diversity equity and inclusion are born out of so it's really you see that's the that's when you have the infiltration uh, by the Frankfurt School and the neo-Marxist mm-hmm. ideals making their way into our culture and our educational institutions. That's when it began. It was you know right around that time, the 20s and 30s. So it's yeah, yeah okay perfect yeah it's a it, it makes perfect sense that at that point, and again it's interesting that you brought up that it was a divergence from. A conversation about good versus evil which is based in judeo-christian principles right that's how we mm-hmm. make determinations of good and evil and then it goes into these neo-marxist principles of oppressor versus oppressed and so they connected that from it's no longer a conversation about um you know if if abortion is good or evil it's no longer about preserving an individual's life it became a women's reproductive right at some point which was really like I, I didn't know much about where Planned Parenthood started or how abortion really became a thing um, they tied it back to a woman named Margaret Sanger yeah there? she was a yeah she was a uh, a uh, what do you call them the uh, eugenics 
yeah, eugenics, a eugenicist, right? Which again, you mm -hmm. can really that. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring back the the idea that there there was no racism. There was definitely racism because eugenics actually has its roots back back to the time of slavery because when there was all this pushback from abolitionists that hey slavery's wrong the the argument was where eugenics was born from because the argument was no 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 they're less than human so the people who were supporting slavery were trying to make the argument that well these african slaves they're not really human right and which is yeah, again you're actually seeing pain. this happen right it's a dehumanization yeah. Right, you dehumanize, and then you can, and then you can make it okay and acceptable for for the enslavement of of a people when you dehumanize them. Which again, we're seeing in our current culture, there is definitely a movement towards dehumanization happening. Um, however, it's happening mostly towards men, uh, white men in general, but men, or I'd say men in general, but specifically, it's more targeted at white straight men. Um, but there, and but there even there's a dehumanization of women happening. Where now, any man who just claims to be a woman is a woman. So you could put on womanhood as a costume, and how is that not dehumanizing towards actual women? You know, yeah. uh, where so does that leave we're, biological women? Right. Yeah. I, I don't even like to use that word because that's the only kind of woman there are. <laughs> <laughs> is the biological kind <laughs> kind of like when you mentioned biological babies I'm like uh, not aware of any other kind but okay we'll go with biological babies or biological children well let me let me know what you think about the rest of this I'll try to sum it up pretty quick here because um, they, they started talking of tying it into current events and current you know issues that people are dealing with which is why they connected it to um, abortion because that's a big thing that people are talking about and they talked about how many you know black pregnancies are terminated and they connected it to Margaret Sanger and eugenics and abortion the belief that some people were degenerates and didn't deserve to live and so it made it okay to abort those pregnancies but then they went into talking about how uh, they think that black people are being traded for a whole new victim class aka illegal immigration they said that not only is 60 percent of all births in the u.s latinos today but um democrats are also advocating for wide open borders and ushering these people in by the millions and getting them basically completely reliant on government even giving some of them without citizenship the right to vote and they're like, what they're trying to do is what they did to the black people in the 60s, is bring in this whole class of people, make them dependent on government, and now you've got an entire class of victim voting citizens or non-citizens or whatever. What are they? A, a permanent class of victim voters is what they said. That's right. the entire yeah, that, that makes sense. like um, strategy that's going on right now. That's the, the big concern that they had towards the end. Um, yeah, well, right, let, me, let me address that one before you go on to the next one. Um, yes, I think that's exactly what they, what they believe they can achieve by opening up the borders and things. I, but how, I think in the long run, I think that's going to backfire on them. And here's why I think that. Um, traditionally, and I'll say the, the culture of 
Mexico and, and, and I, I don't know much about uh, many of the other South American countries, but I know I'm pretty familiar with Mexican culture. And these are a traditional people. These are uh, people who embrace Judeo-Christian principles. These are hardworking people. So I, but again, so were, so were the blacks up until the yep. 60s, right? So it's like yep. I could see how they could achieve that in the same way. Um, but I also see that because of the nature of uh, Hispanic culture, that because the immigrant class is new, you're not going to necessarily convince all the adults coming over the border, which is probably why they have this whole thing for the kids that come dreamers. over, how they're, yeah, the, the dreamers and all this, because they know they can get their hooks in them. Right, they know they can shape the way those those kids think because I guarantee you that's that was their foothold that they got in on the black communities was the youth, right? You, we all, in our youth, experience this angst towards the establishment, right? We an angst towards our parents, an angst towards the establishment. So you can capitalize on that, right? And so they're looking at basically capitalizing on the younger generation. Um, and pulling it apart, I'm like, the more I talk about this, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that this is exactly what they've already done <laughs> and that it might not actually be that difficult for them to do it again um, because it's what they did with black culture. So I was hoping, like, the, just because of my experience and, you know, I'm originally from Southern California, so I, I, I knew the Mexican culture. I was, I was embedded in it. I was surrounded by it. So when I look at it, I'm like, no, I don't, I don't see them going for this because of their traditional beliefs, because of their hardworking nature. I, 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 I would, it's hard for me to see them going for it, but again, they already did it and they've already achieved it. So they know they could do it again. Um, well, there's one, there's one big differentiating key factor uh, versus you know, the difference between uh, Latin Americans and African Americans. And that's the, uh, the, you know, the organization called ICE. That's the deportation threat that they can pretty much hold over any non-American born citizen. So, you know, at least for one to two generations, they have that concern to watch out for. And even like, I know people, you know, when, when I was in New Mexico, I knew people that were legal American citizens, but were terrified of driving south of Albuquerque because they didn't want to get picked up and put in a detention center somewhere until all their paperwork got sorted out. And I'm like, dude, that is a very real threat that a lot of Latinos deal with in the U.S. And it's not like they were going to round up African Americans and send them back to Ghana. Like... They're not gonna. <laughs> they're not gonna deport right. these people back to the African continent. So it's it's a little bit different, um, and at least until you know all these people realize that they are citizens and that they have certain rights. And then at that point, are they going to then you know stand up and be responsible? Or are they going to demand you know handouts, reparations, and shit? In like that? In, in reality, it's going to come down to the youth. It's going to come down yeah. to those those Latin youth, whether or not they fall for the bullshit 
and start pushing for the entitlements or believing themselves to be entitled and believing themselves to be victims because I don't believe that their parents, especially if they're first generation, are going to fall for that or going to buy into that. Um, so it's, it's, it's going to depend on how strong the youth are at, at seeing through the, the, the bullshit that's being presented to them. Yeah, not to mention there there are several Latino families, not several, there's a lot of them coming from countries that are already, you know, socialist or, or communist. So they've got right. real life yeah. experiences of what right. that they're looks terrified like. of it. Yeah, they're yeah, you're not gonna convince the Venezuelans coming here nope. <laughs> that, that liberalism is a good idea. Um but you may fact, I mean you like, may convince a Brazilian or a Mexican, you might but I doubt it again because they, they you're not going to convince the adults of that, right? right. You can you now if, if the kids are coming here young enough, right? So if a kid came here, you know, below the age of ten, they don't know any better. They don't remember necessarily their own culture, and they're going to be indoctrinated from day one to believe that they're victims, to believe that they're entitled, and that. And so that that is where it would spread from, is from this next generation, right? It wouldn't be from the people who are fleeing it, right? Like I said, you're not going to convince someone freshly out of Venezuela to vote for socialists. They're like, yeah, no, already did that, and uh, it completely destroyed my country. Um, but their children, their children can be convinced of it because their children will have no memory of what that was. Now they may because they'll hear the stories of it. So this is a distinguishing feature that that the yeah. African communities didn't have, right? They didn't have an experience of the destructive nature of socialism. They didn't have that. But mm -hmm. you're not going to convince a Cuban to vote liberal. You know what I mean? Like nope. in fact, uh what's his name? Pitbull, the uh the Cuban artist. Like I don't know what age he was when he came here, but he was probably pretty young. But he knows communism, and he knows he doesn't want it here, you know. Um, and so you're probably like that. Even the first generation of kids from Venezuela are going to be like, it's going to be so close to them. They're going to hear the horror stories from their parents and grandparents that they're going to be like, yeah, we don't want that here. So it actually may work against them in this in the fact that socialism has reared its ugly head mm -hmm. in the Latin cultures of, of, of Central and South America and North America enough that they're wary of it and they and they're aware of the results of it. So that may again. So so my my uh, this may not work ideas back on the table. <laughs> <laughs> they, this, this may not be the greatest idea they ever came up with because of the exposure that Latin American countries have had to socialism and the, and the negative impact it's had. Well, if they're thinking generations out, then you know, and they're playing the long game, then it's entirely feasible. Right, the long game. But there, there is one good barometer that they could use to, you know, to tell when when the the communities are ripe, and that would be the Latino um, communities in Florida. I was shocked to find out how many of them voted for Trump in the in the last time around, and it was like eighty percent of them, or something. I'm like, how on earth could that be? And then that's when I learned a lot about, you know, like Venezuelans coming into Florida and living there and be like, oh, he sounds a lot like so-and-so. I'm no, I'm not going to vote for that guy. 
I'm going to vote for this guy Trump because he's, you know, the opposite of that. And once you see those numbers switching, once you see those younger generations, um, you know, evening those numbers out, that's when you will know that, okay, you know, 1960 is about to come back around again and it may take until 2060 right but that's um right well you know what there's 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 one more part of that that they talked about towards the end of this this movie and that's that conservatives are really bad at marketing good ideas but (laughs) if they got good at that and they started communicating these ideas effectively to african-american cultures and um, Latino American culture and saying, hey, this is what we have to offer. This is when things have worked. Here's the true history of these different parties. If they were able to lay out things like this, they said that it's it's just kind of taken for granted that 90 to 95% of the black vote goes Democrat. But there is an enormous, like they, they said, it's low-hanging fruit. The African American culture is low-hanging fruit to the Republicans right now because of how many of those values um, actually are in line with African-American culture. Right, but a lot of it's, I think a lot of it's been lost. And like when you look at the, the cultural issues now and, and where the black communities are at culturally, it's like they've lost connection to that. Like, and I, I, I mean, it's there, it's part of their history, but how many of them are still connected to their history? How many of them have, been told stories by their grandparents how many of them are connected to their grandparents how many of them have learned any sense of values i mean when you're talking about uh the black community killing the black community like clearly there's something missing there there's something in the gap there there is a disconnect from their original morality and principles that's just it's it's not there right now now reconnecting them with that and having them see and i think you kind of spoke into this like the the lack of awareness of what their history in this country has been like the yeah. fact that you can point back to jim the jim crow south in the 50s and it's better than what you have now like, like that's not something that's like <laughs> well why that's going to occur <laughs> to people you know but it's because there's a complete lack of awareness of what the black family was in the Jim Crow South in the 50s and what black culture yeah. and community was in the Jim Crow South in the 50s. Like, there's a disconnect, right? So they, they're really not aware. Their presumption and assumption is what they're experiencing now is actually better than what was then. And it's not. But they're being told it is. They're being told what they have right now, which is you know, massive amounts of crime, dilapidated cities, uh, you know, I I, I don't know what the percentages of business ownership or property ownership or anything are now, but I guarantee it's probably a lot less than it was in the early 60s, -hmm. late 50s. And that's something they're not even aware of. Like their, their conception of what they have now is that whatever was in the 50s was probably worse and that's just not the case. And it, it's interesting to think about the, the family, familial structure because a lot of these people started talking about how good of a relationship they had with their dad, which is why they have certain values and they understand certain things about history 
I'm like, if you don't have a good relationship with your dad or your mom, how connected do you think you're going to be with your grandparents on either side? You're, you're probably not going to be connected right. with them hardly at all, which means you're not getting like secondhand facts from the 50s or earlier. So the only thing that you know about that time period, like before the civil rights movement, is school, is movies. What's being fed to you through the distorted educational system and the distorted media. Yep. All the entertainment stuff that you hear. And so when you see Jay-Z up there talking about, you know, we've got to have some serious conversations about, you know, the N-word and reparations. And people go, oh, man, yeah, of course. And then you got guys like Colin... Um, Kaepernick, is that his name? Kaepernick. Yeah. And he's half white, half black. But yet he's totally moved over and identified with the black half of him and not the white half of him. Like, those are things that these guys are, are talking about. And they even went into talking about Obama and and how he ran his entire campaign on uh, basically merit-based campaign where he was like, if I don't get chosen, I know it's not because I'm black. I know that it's because I didn't show the American people a future that they could believe in and support that I could deliver. And then as soon as he gets right. inaugurated, he starts coming out and talking about how racism is in the DNA of this country and that there's no getting rid of it and exaggerated the situation. And, and, how, and how oppressed he is in yeah. his wife. And has been throughout <laughs> his life. I mean, it's just like right. all you're of like, a sudden the light switched. You're, you're <laughs> the upper echelon of our society. You've been elected president of the most powerful <laughs> nation on earth, and you're oppressed? How does that work? <laughs> I mean, the, the way that they, like, if I could summarize the end of that film when they were talking about this, and, and then I'll go into their closing concept. Um, but okay. just at the end of there, it's like, it's as if, racism since the civil rights movement had died and gotten less and less and less to where in my young adulthood i don't remember any real racism like some things like oh yeah black guys got big dicks and asians are really smart and like no real racism but like stereotype type of stuff which was more right. funny than than you know you know detrimental to who i was trying to be in the world and so once Obama came, then it was like, okay, racism is officially over. And everybody that they interviewed was like, oh, my heart just was able to relax. And then he came out and exacerbated things and basically reinvigorated racism in the country. And I was like, oh, so it's, <laughs> it's like, it's like, it died on the cross and was reborn. <laughs> it's like yeah. the rebirth yeah, of go. racism in the country happened over his eight years or whatever you want to call it. And and then you throw Trump on the end of it, and he shows up in his campaign, which they showed and talked about. They're like, he was our first like cultural leader of the black community. <laughs> and they showed him going in there and like looking people dead in the eye over his, you know, his campaign and looking in the camera and being like, your inner cities are crumbling and your businesses are suffering and your families are coming apart. He's like, what do you got to lose? <laughs> and that was his marketing to the black <laughs> community. And everybody was so offended and so pissed off that he would say that. But people like 
you know, Candace Owens and some of these other people that they had in their interviewing, they were all like, oh, man, it hurt, but he was right. Like, what do I got to lose? Let's try Trump. <laughs> and so then all of a sudden they all moved over to, like, being a Republican and understanding the history of the Republican Party and 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 blah, 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 blah. It was, it was actually quite funny. Um, but also interesting to look at Barama's Obama, Barack Obama's presidency in that way because I had never really considered the race aspect of his presidency because it honestly didn't fucking matter to me but looking back on it like that was my experience oh man racism is over and then he started talking about it again he's like wait a minute what, what you're talking about race more than any other candidate or any other person I've ever heard before and then here we are you know yeah yeah. So the closing idea that I actually genuinely appreciate um, from this film is I just wrote this little this little quote here. He said, "Black people are bigger than any program, and they can achieve so much more than anything a government or governmental program can offer." He's like, "We as a community can do so much better." when we come to that realization. So again, he tied the entire film back to the realization that if you choose to be responsible, you can create anything. And history has proved that. As soon as you adopt the victim mentality and start asking for handouts, everything crumbles underneath you. And that, like, you could yeah. sum up the entire movie with, with that sentence, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I think you... You can't separate that from the neo-Marxism that's made its way into our culture and is, you know, at the forefront of liberalism today. Like, that is the central tenets of Marxism and why it's just... <laughs> you can't give me a single example of Marxism or any form of communism not completely destroying a, a culture and a society. And costing the lives of millions or in the case of China and Soviet Union, a hundred million, you know, dead because of bad ideas you know, and bad that's ideas. really where we're heading, it's just bad ideas, and and th now you know why they push so hard against merit, <laughs> because their ideas are so bad, they don't want anyone actually looking at them and gauging the merit of their ideas because they're terrible ideas they're fucking terrible ideas well also merit would be the antithesis of their bad ideas like if you if you adopt right. their ideas and you're like well it's a merit-based system too i need to stand on my own merit and believe you like they're incompatible you cannot have no, yeah. those ideas and be fully competent yourself I mean, you can, but they both don't survive. <laughs> you end up getting hired because of your merit, and then, you know, you can't hold that belief anymore. Like, oh, I guess it's because I'm talented. Or you get the diversity hire, and you're like, well, I guess I didn't need my merit. But they, don't, <laughs> they both don't take you to the same destination. I'll put it that way. Indeed. Well, I think, uh, I think we've beat this horse. I think so. There's uh, nothing else about this that I would say except for there is a Uncle Tom 2. And that one goes into much more depth, I think, around 
the uh, the civil rights movement and and the role models that are put up in front of us nowadays and how all of that is leading down the same path and basically recreating history just like how you had um, some of these black leaders um, you know like for instance I don't think they really talked about this in in the second movie but it's what I saw and what I understood early on with Malcolm X where as soon as he was jumping out there saying that white people were devils and um, you needed to you know, have segregation and leave us alone and send us back to Africa. Like he was, he was promoted, he was famous, he was well off. And as soon as he, you know, went out of, out of the country and came back, he was like, man, I prayed with some white people and it's not white people that are the problem. It's racism. Bam. They killed that man dead. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, you know, that they go into that type of stuff where um, they really like viciously well, he violently al- defend he, It's interesting. He, he also, interestingly enough, came out against liberalism and how li- the liberal yeah. establishment yeah. was, was the, uh, the biggest problem for the black communities of the United States. All right. Well, we'll I look forward to talking about that next time. Uh, thank you very much for this. I feel like I got a lot out of this conversation, and I will talk to you soon, my friend. Absolutely. Talk to you next time.